Hi, this is Ashley Farode, and you're listening to Behind the Bio, the podcast about the people behind the professions. In this episode, John Blacksland is my guest. John is an Australian historian, an academic, and a former Australian Army officer. He's currently a professor in intelligence studies and international security at the Australian National University. I reached out to John after listening to him on a podcast where he was analysing the current situation in Russia and Ukraine. The method in which he presented the information to us, the listening audience, made me just as interested in the topic as it did in him. So I reached out and here we are. If you're interested in history, politics, international studies, security, strategy and defence, then this is most certainly the conversation for you. I'd like to thank the Coordinate Group for making this entire series possible, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation with John Blacksland on Behind the Bio. Hello, John. How are you going? Ashley, lovely to be with you. I'm all thanks. It's, it's such a pleasure to speak to you. I just uh, have to set the scene here very, very quickly. Um, mm. We've got about 45 minutes rather than an hour because we got squeezed in between other meetings. But I really wanted to talk to you because I heard you speak on the quickie in mm. relation to the current situation happening in Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. The way that you spoke and presented what is inside your mind and your expertise to an audience that doesn't always understand things at such depth. So in other words, you're able to not dumb it down, but most certainly make it very understandable. Mm-hmm. It was really enriching. And I thought there is there is most certainly a skill in that. And in many ways, but it reminds me of the kind of career my father had, who was also at ANU for many years. He's retired now as a political scientist. And I realized that out of all the people that I've spoken to over the years of this podcast, mm. I haven't actually spoken to an academic in your space mm-hmm. and really wanted to reach out to you, have a bit of a chat about how you got into the world that you're in, mm. and then actually maybe dig a little bit deeper into the way that you perceive the things that are happening out there from a political point of view. Yeah. And how you digest that and everything else because it's such a changing world. So we'll break it into two parts, perhaps. Sure. Yep. So first thing first, mm. your background, where was it in your life, so to speak, that you kind of realized this is the space you'd like to be in? As in, was it when you were choosing university studies? Was it outside of university? Did you fall into it? Was it a predetermined path? Tell me how is it that you ended up where you are? Yes. So it's it, where do you start, you know, um, it's interesting. Look, my father was the vicar of Valparaiso. He was an adventurist clergyman. Um, uh, he's still alive um, and uh, retired on the Sunshine Coast. And uh, he uh, inspired me to read, uh, to, um, uh, to, to speak, to uh, consider history. He was a history buff. Um, and I got the bug. Um, and I remember reading AJP Taylor's History of the Second World War. It was enthralling and fascinating. And um, then at school, I, I studied um, ancient history and was absolutely enthralled by the Peloponnesian Wars uh, and the accounts by Thucydides of those of those conflicts. And um, 
I I had a sense that military history was going to feature, but I also, for some reason, and this was a bit hard to explain, I had a a desire to join the army. I wanted to go to Duntroon, which was back then was where you the University of New South Wales had an affiliation pre-ADVA. Um, so um, I, I actually took a gap year before I joined the army and I travelled around Europe and um, came back really fired up to knuckle down and study, which I did at uh, Duntroon, UNSW, and came out of that with a first-class honours degree and um, an, in, an enthusiasm for the intelligence core and intelligence analysis and reflection. So I had a lot of fun doing that. And then the army... Um, I, I didn't think I was going to stay in the army very long, but I found that once I got into my career, it was just so interesting and there were so many fascinating things to do. And I felt I could make a positive contribution, um, including as an intelligence analyst and as an intelligence practitioner. And uh, I had a stint as an instructor at the Royal Military College Duntroon uh, in the early 90s. And I realised that I loved teaching. I really, really enjoyed it. Um and so I tucked that thought away. And by then I'd, I was completing a master's by th- thesis, which is a book on the Army Signals Corps. And, um, I thought, well, maybe one day I'll do a PhD. Um, and, uh, so I then, the, the, the Army having sent me to learn to speak Thai, uh, cause I'd been tested for language aptitude and I have a tonal, tonal aptitude, tonal language aptitude. So I simply learned to speak Thai, which was really fun for 12 months. And eventually they sent me to Thailand as an exchange student to their, the Royal Thai Army Command and Staff College, which is like a middle management Masters of Public Administration program, but in Thai. So it was immersion. Um, and it was a wonderful experience. So enriching culturally, gave me a whole different perspective on the world. Um, and I'd always had a fascination with things of the Orient and being able to read and write and speak and listen and understand an, a, la- a language from Asia, from mainland Asia, was just so thrilling. I still get a buzz when I go to Bangkok and I could get off the plane. And I'm reading all the signs. I said, yes, I can do this. <laughs> so all these years later, I still it still gives me a thrill. Um, so that kind of thing was always... I was always in, interested in, in, in that side of things. And the Army kept, as I said, I was interested in having an academic career, but the Army kept offering me really interesting things to do. So after my time in uh, Thailand as an exchange student, they sent me to, Tha- to Townsville to be the intelligence officer for the, uh, the, the Ready Deployment Force, the 3rd Brigade, as it was then, thinking, well, they'll be interesting, probably won't go anywhere, but it'll be an interesting couple of years. And of course, just I happened to be there when the East Timor crisis erupted. So I'd ended up deploying with the brigade to East Timor. And it was a, you know, it was a pinnacle experience, uh, applying many of the skills learnt in the army, uh, contributing to the liberation, the establishment of a new little nation, East Timor, uh, and, um, you know, people who've been part of that, you know, some people have been traumatised, obviously, by it, but many of us feel incredible sense of pride and honour to have been part of that operation. I then went, uh, was posted to Washington as an exchange officer at the Defence Intelligence Agency, thinking that I'd never um, deal with East Timor again. And, and But I, fe- I got there and everybody, this is pre-9-11, everybody wanted to hear about Australia's success in East Timor. So, and I was one of the few people who'd been there who was then in Washington because I just happened to be... And first-hand. And first-hand. So I got 
fated around the country speaking on uh, various institutions at various academies on the Australian experience in East Timor. And that got me thinking, well, and people said, John, you should write this up, you know, you should write about this. And then I thought, maybe maybe it's time to do a PhD. So at the end of, nearing the end of my posting to Washington, I, I wrote to the army and I said, look, I'd really like to do a PhD and I think I'd like to go and do it in Canada. And by that stage, I'd actually, one of the things I'd done is give one of these guest lectures in Canada. Um, and while I was there, explored the options and they, they seemed enthused to have me as a, a student. So I wrote to the army and said, look, please let me go. I'm happy to go on leave without pay or half pay or long service leave. Just please don't say no. You know, I didn't have kids at that stage. My wife and I had calculated uh, we could probably make it work if the army didn't support it. Um, but they came back and said, no, no, we, we'll, we'll, we'll sponsor you. So that was very exciting. So we went to Canada for two years, did a PhD comparing Canadian. I thought initially Canadian-Australian peacekeeping, but then 9-11 happened. And then we thought, no, let's do it a broader canvas, look at Canadian-Australian comparisons in terms of their relations with the British and American empires and their, the use of force. And how how and why we do it. So that had a lot of fun doing that. Um, then I was posted back to Australia to the what's now the Australian Signals Directorate. Had a wonderful couple of years there, an amazing institution. Actually, I was there thinking, oh, I think I could stay here. This is so fascinating, and such rewarding work. Very, you can really see the the the, the consequence of your actions and the reports you write and the, the direct effect in terms of supporting military operations, and in policy formulation too. Really interesting work. Cutting edge stuff. Um, but the Army then posted me to a place called the Land Warfare Studies Centre, now the Army Research Centre, and I wrote a paper on counterinsurgency while I was there. And then when I was there, they then said, oh, John, we want to promote you and send you to be the Chief of Joint Intelligence Operations at Joint Operations Command. And I said, oh, that sounds pretty interesting. Uh, and uh, so I went and did that. And then they said, John, we want to make you Defence Attaché to Thailand and Myanmar. And I said, well, that's even more exciting. <laughs> so, so, and by the end of the time, by that, by the time that had finished, I'd been in the army for 28 years. Mm. Um, and then. Well, and here you thought all the way through when these steps were taking place that this was never going to lead to no, somewhere. I'll do this for a couple of years. Yeah. This will be nothing. And, and in hindsight, it looks, it looks like it was a magic plan. Oh, you know? I know. <laughs> it looked like a magic plan, but it didn't seem that way at the time. It was like, oh, we'll, we'll see what happens, you know, play it by ear. Um, and at the end of that, my supervisor for my master's thesis, David Horner, who's here at the ANU as an emeritus professor now, but he'd won the contract to write the history of ASIO. And he'd seen my work and he'd supervised my master's and he knew, and he'd read my PhD thesis and he knew what I could do. And he, so he wrote to me, he rang me actually and said, John, I want you to apply for this job to be my co-author of the multi-volume history of ASIO. And I thought, wow, that sounds really interesting. So I, I applied and I got it. And then I've been at ANU for the last 11 years. <laughs> uh, so the first few years were working writing on ASIO. And while I was there, I started, David got asked by the archives to give a lecture, a series of lectures to explain to archivists what's in the archives, particularly relating to intelligence and national security. And he didn't really feel enthused to do it. And he said, John, maybe you want to do this. And I said to my, our research assistant and, and ended up being co-author of Volume 3, David uh, Rhys Crawley, I said, Rhys, why don't we do this together? And Rhys and I did this 12-lectures, two-day program explaining all of the various components of the national intelligence and security and inter architecture of Australia historically. And that went around very well. And then we thought, you know, I think 
we've probably got the makings of a course here. So we then offered it to ANU as a course. Mm -hmm. And it's been, uh, that's what became Honeypots and Overcoats, Australian intelligence in the world. So milking off our work, working on the art for the archives and on the work on the ASIO history and then my own career in intelligence and combined all that. So here I am and now busy as all get out <laughs> managing a, a, in a, club, a bunch of 150 students mm. um, and having a ball lecturing and teaching and tutoring and uh, engaging on contemporary issues in the meantime. So the word that I'm hearing this is that you're obviously very curious and always have been. I mean, all the mm. way through, you said the words, and I find this really interesting, and mm. that would be really interesting. So you're very much driven by the pursuit of knowledge in the specific things. Yeah. That's, that's one thing that I'm hearing. Yeah. The second thing is, as we just laughed, it, this wasn't a big plan, yet if you kind of draw a line between where you started and where you are now, it's yes. actually a very logical one. And it would seem that your talent was rewarded and the hard work that you did was rewarded by opportunities coming to you. That's the way I'm seeing yeah. it. But it's got a slightly deeper question. And I'll go back to my father here for a moment. Mm. You know, for all the years and discussions that I've ever had with him, and I think it's only when I get older that I actually truly understand what his purpose in all of the work that he used to do actually was. And I don't know whether he'll agree with me. I'm sure he'll listen to this podcast and say, what are you saying? But <laughs> the way I'm thinking about it is my dad is a philosopher at heart. Mm -hmm. uh, philosophy is his mm -hmm. passion. Political mm -hmm. science is an extension of that. Yep. I believe that the reason he so deeply was and is into it is because he's trying to, A, understand the complexity of human nature. Yep. And by the means of political science and everything else, also try to predict outcomes and have mm -hmm. a knowledge of that. And he enjoys trying to crack an understanding. He was actually an expert on the Soviet Union as well. Right. Um, and essentially through that, you know, when I'm having conversations with him, it's all about insight, what happened, what will likely happen, those yeah. predictions. Yeah. So he's the driver, I think, is about trying to understand the world around us and and whether it's making it a better place than it is probably a second thing. Mm. He did say a moment ago that you contributed to things you could really see take place policy action that yep. had a particular outcome yep. but tell me that 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 psychological driver mm. you know what is it about the army systems what is it about the political systems what was it apart from just being curious about it that got you excited about it and that you're still obviously excited talking to students a hundred plus of them mm. each week what's the driver behind all of that so for me uh, i draw enormous satisfaction from seeing students uh, have an aha moment of learning and getting understanding and then feeling the uh, utility of the knowledge they've gained and the insights they've, they've gained and the, and the skills that they've developed through the interaction we share um, and take that to uh, a career. And I have to say, I now... I'm, I bump into former students around Canberra and it's one of my greatest joys to bump into them and see them and ask them what they're doing and how they're going mm. and, and find out about how their careers have, have tracked since I, I, I knew them. And, uh, it is really rewarding to see that. And I, for me, uh, part of, part of the, the issue that I find so satisfying and, um, drives my wife crazy because I, I, I can't let go. I'm just, I, I love what I do so much, <clears throat> is that um, it's my teaching is drawn from my life and my research. And it, it's it's hard to disentangle all that 
but it it energizes what I do, mm-hmm. um, and it uh, I think it helps make it more relevant for the students, and I think it it kind of from what that from what they tell me it it uh, it's refreshing for them to see the the application of theory in in an applied context and that's been my life you know uh you know i've been it when i was in uniform doing things that were about uh, a consequence of national policy um, and national priorities in the intelligence and operations domain um and and in policy formulation as well, having intelligence inform policy. In fact, just last week in class, we were talking about analysis, intelligence analysis, and the, the purpose of this to, is to inform policy choices, not to drive policy, not to be prescriptive about policy, but to inform judgments about the policy options for Australia. Uh, and so giving students a sense of that and, and the utility and the significance of that is I find very, very satisfying. Um, I'm not sure if I've answered your question, actually. No, 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 you have. I, I completely get it. And it's interesting that two things that I'm hearing there, and I'm sure you're used to, you've heard this, that, you know, people believe that academics work in the, the theoretical theory. world, yes. Mm. And, you know, the applied thing is sometimes a bit lacking and all the rest of it. And, of course, that's not something I, I agree with only because I've been surrounded by academics all my life, with mm. especially my father and, yeah. and yeah. all my studies at ANU and UC, and I've worked at both ANU for many years and now at UC. So mm. Mm. I, I know this world very well. Yeah. But I, I think what you're talking about is the passing of information from you to others and equipping them with skill actually does transform theory into practice it absolutely in the does. That they have and yep. that is the thing that gives you sense of accomplishment as well absolutely i get a complete buzz out of it yeah, yeah really do very satisfying and it is as you say it's that it's the rubber hitting the road it's applied theory uh, and with very practical outcomes and uh, applications yeah and even to the point that i made earlier in the podcast about me listening to the quickie and, and mm. you providing some insight into the current russian ukraine situation what I found very interesting about that is you weren't coming across as a lecturer through the microphone mm. to the masses telling mm. them the way things are. You provided an analysis of a situation, mm. which is still ongoing. So the predictions are difficult, but yep. you provided a number of different scenarios. What you've essentially did is you equipped people with a whole bunch of thinking around a particular situation. And therefore, people can feel enriched. Yeah. Which I think is a very important point because that in itself mm. is a very great outcome. And, and look, part of that is a reflection of my intelligence, army intelligence training. Mm. Um, and that was very much about methodically thinking through options <clears throat> and dealing with the uncertainty of future prospects. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a historian by academic training, but as I say, an intelligence analyst by, by my military training. And, um, it's an interesting overlap because history is past looking to the past and intelligence analysis is about forecasts. And one of the things I find, and I'm trying to encourage my students, a sense of historical perspective to understand how we got to where we are, because that will tell you a lot about what the future options might be. Um, and, and why, you know, certain actors might act the way they do and why they might not view the world the way we do. Mm. Um, and how important it is to actually put yourself in the shoes of that 
person or that figure or that country that you're studying and trying to understand, um, be it a target, an adversary, or, you know, just a, a point of interest. And, um, and, and so I, I've been trying to encourage students to be rigorous and methodical in, in, you know, analyzing, pulling apart the components of a problem. To, uh, to consider the components before you reassemble them to come up with a, a deeper understanding of the issues. And when you do that and you look into the future, uh, you know, there's classic stuff from my army training is that you have a series of potential courses of action your adversary could take in a, in a threat scenario. But, mm-hmm. you know, this classic one we're facing right now over Ukraine, trying to understand what the options are in Ukraine. Um, what are the options? And they're based about, on an understanding of the capability and on the likely intentions. And the capability is is the kind of foundational one. What can you do? What physically are you resourced to do? And then what do you want to do with those capabilities? And that gives you a range of options. So having that kind of approach to deconstructing and then reconstructing, um, you then get to the point where you can have a series of possibilities, you know, likely scenarios that emerge. Um, and that is... Um, intellectually stimulating, mm. it's challenging and rewarding too. It's fascinating. And you've kind of slightly answered this question before because you said your professional life and personal life and other things are kind of all between, mm. entwined. But do you apply that logic and that ability to think pretty much all the time? And I mean, I'm not probably to making selections to which milk you're going to buy at the supermarket. <laughs> I'm not going down as low as that. But but if when you're making bigger life decisions, do you still do the same thing? Do you do that with people? Because the reason I'm asking this question is the logic that you just said is trying to understand the intentions of somebody else, mm. then trying to work a number of scenarios can be applied to things, yes, at a political scale. Yes. But that can most certainly be applied even at your workplace, in a meeting. I'm wondering whether you always have the analytical brain on or do you turn it on and off? That, that's a good question. I think if you ask my wife... <laughs> She would say, I turn it off when I come home. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 she probably wouldn't say that. She'd probably say, oh, don't turn it off. But it's all for work. It's all about, you know, grand international <laughs> security related issues rather than domestic challenges. Yeah, so we've got no milk. <laughs> you, you go buy some milk, John, you know, and, uh, or, you know, the garden's overgrown. Yeah, we need to spend this weekend gardening, not writing another bloody paper. <laughs> Well, there isn't an answer. There's, it's, uh, this might sound silly. Again, going back to my father, I remember he, he would have colleagues come over, mm. you know, and they're all what I would call intellectual types at that mm. moment. They're all academic friends of his. And I started, I mean, I was a teenager at that point, and I started making jokes around stereotypes of who they were and what they did, what they looked like. And most of them were so devoted to the things that were academic in their life that yeah. pretty much everything else fell over. Like yeah. their cars would be terrible. <laughs> the hose, exactly. The garden would be overgrown. They would dress shabbily and all the rest of it. I mean, they were fantastic human beings, but I did make that mm. that joke only mm. probably just to dig into my father at that point. You can get a bit tunnel visioned. Yeah. You know, and you've, everybody's got only so much emotional and intellectual bandwidth in a day. Um, and it, and can get if you know when you're in academia this is one of the things about the ivory tower you can get consumed by your world um and the challenges that are you're grappling with and uh in fact (laughs) reminds me uh, when i was 
doing my PhD, I, I was similar. I was tunnel visioned, just completely obsessed with my PhD yeah. um, and getting it done and getting it done on in, on time and, you know, being effective and having a publishable product at the end. Um, and I think... Uh, I think you're right. That's that's one of the things about living in the ivory tower, you know, metaphorically. And here we are in the Headley Ball Building. It literally looks like an ivory <laughs> tower. Uh, and here am I, you know, looking, peering out my window of this ivory tower into the real world outside. I'm surprised it doesn't have a moat around it as well. <laughs> that's right. It could well do. <laughs> a drawbridge that falls yeah. down. Yes. No, it's whoever designed it. It really was very, you know, clearly had um, academia in mind, you know, had a profound insight on, on academia. But... <clears throat> but um, um, yeah, so you know the uh, this world it doesn't it doesn't present you with the kinds of challenges that uh, uh, people in business or in the public service or in other fields would have to grapple with. You have uh, you might you have teaching responsibilities, you have supervisory responsibilities, but then you have projects, research projects, and um, you know. You, depending on you know on the stage of your career and your life, you can get involved in university administration and politics and that, which is all well and good. Somebody's got to do it. Um, but for many of us, it's actually all about that the the research projects and the books mm-hmm. and the outcomes and the and the the contribution to the body of knowledge, which yeah. is completely I completely groove on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've got a shelf um, brimming full of stuff that. Um, nobody's read but it's given me a lot of fun writing (laughs) and just look despite making fun when i was a teenager out of my dad's friends the truth of the matter is you know as as i got older i just realized how amazing it is to be surrounded by people that have that kind of passion and you Mm. know like ended up working most of my adult life with academics so really it worked out all okay and realized that you know sure the car is the lowest priority but for a reason because they'd much rather invest into the intellectual side but you touched on something that i really want to get into most people who follow politics on a public level, if I can call it that, right? right. Yeah. It's overwhelming to try to think of it more than that. Mm. It's overwhelming on many factors, overwhelming mm. in terms of the amount of things you need to know about the current situation, mm. most certainly how much you need to know about history mm. because that plays such a humongous part. Mm. There is a emotional aspect of it. Most people's don't want to be speaking about war and conflict as it has a toll on us. We want to have a good life and we don't want to think of people being being killed and harmed and what have you. I just wanted to get some thoughts on this. How does, especially with someone that has your experience now, how do you manage that level of complexity? A, not to have a complete tunnel vision, but to actually be able to work with it on an ongoing basis without it becoming essentially ultimately damaging. Mm. I mean, Clearly, there's got to be a way of balancing this. How do you take emotion out of it? Or is it about thinking about it in a different light? I'd, I'd love your thoughts on about how it is that one doesn't find this amount of information and also the consequences of what's happening in the world overwhelming. Yeah, no, it, I think there are moments when it can be overwhelming. Um, and it's a matter of trying to rise above it. And this is one of the things I tell my students about distilling complexity into apparent simplicity. This is this is I think what an academic can do. This is the, what scholarship can do. What good analysis can do, and this is what I, I try and inculcate in my students is this ability. You know, this um, the task they've got they're working on now is is a a simulated intelligence assessment where they are asked a difficult question, and they've got time constraints, and they're 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 actually having to grapple with a lot of different aspects of a problem. 
um, and not fill it an essay with waffle, but just concisely, pithily, punchily articulate key comp- key judgments with evidence um, that have uh, consequence and that are going to potentially capture the eye and the mind of the senior policymaker who, in theory, would read this paper. And in this case, it'll be me as an examiner with other tutors helping. Um, But it's an exciting task for the students to do because it's very close to the real world. It's actually about a real-world contemporary problem, Mm -hmm. but drawing on just publicly available information to do this analysis and think through the problem and then deliver a a product that kind of... Um, it's a facsimile of what an intelligence analyst would be asked to do and probably is being asked to do as we speak. Um, so that, that's the, that's the, uh, that distilling complexity into apparent simplicity is what I'm, I strive for all the time. And I'm always looking to, one of the things when I, I teach my students about analysis is that you, you have a database in your mind already. You, you have a base level of knowledge and you're always looking to top it up. But as you do so, you need to be exercising judgment about what you're topping it up with. Um, how accurate and reliable is the information that you're putting in, that you're reading or absorbing? Um, do you just how much of that do you discard how much do you uh, incorporate into your body of knowledge uh, and how do, how do you let it uh, shape your thinking and your uh, your assessments about what the future might hold and that's what that's uh, a space that i find very stimulating and challenging uh, and rewarding to explore do you think that that method of going into simplicity is what actually allows you to also deal with the emotional side of it or at least to take it out because i could imagine that the emotional responses to the things that are happening in the world apart from anxiety not being good for anyone health-wise and otherwise it can also cloud judgment yeah because when we're anxious or angry or what have you we don't tend to make the best decisions yeah is do you think that process in itself does help with the kind of psychological response yeah so it's you know your your father would probably identify this, you know, when you think about inter- international relations theory and you think about historical precedents, this is what I, I try and do in my mind. I try and think about, okay, there are, there are a very emotive issues happening. People are dying. The, the, the footage on television and on our screens is, is heart wrenching. Um, it's, it's really upsetting. Um, and I'm mindful that in the history of war and the history of mankind, there have been many, many instances like that. And it's important, I think, to keep a theoretical framework in mind. And that's what I try and do. Think about, think about, okay, here are some emotional stimul- stimulus, uh, for my mind and my emotions that, that could lead me down a certain path. How do I, how do I hold back from that? And, and, remain relatively dispassionate as I try and process, synthesize, and then integrate that knowledge, the new knowledge, into my understanding and and shape my views about what the future might hold, Um, and then inform commentary about what the future might hold. Um, So I guess I'm holding those, those theoretical constructs in my head, and I'm 
trying to, as I look at this, remain, I guess I'm being a little bit hard-nosed about it. I'm trying to remain emotionally detached so that I don't just respond emotionally to what I'm seeing, which is uh, shocking and very upsetting if that's what you focus on, you know. And I think maybe the other bit of advice is when I was talking about the public, you know, consuming information currently about the situation, mm. very often what happens is because people are time poor, they have other jobs, they have other things, yeah. but they still want to understand situations. They'll read things in the news, they'll, they'll listen to things, whatever it may be, and yeah. they'll try to distill things into simplicity. The yeah. problem with that is if you overdo it, and jump to an essentially black or white answer yeah. is probably the worst place to be in as well. This gets to the problem of, of disinformation, misinformation and fake news and, and you know, what, what the Russians call maskirovka and desinformatia, you know, the, this idea of, of playing with your head. Um, and we're seeing a lot of that. We've Look, we've been seeing it for years, to be honest, um, but it's kind of become patently clear more recently. Um, and that is... Uh, a, a real challenge, and and uh, you know, it's I, I actually draw on these these points I teach my students, uh, and I, I draw them on, on them routinely. But it's just been fresh because it's just this last week we talked about it in class about you know really you've got to weigh up the and think about the accuracy and reliability of the information you uh, you are reading or seeing or hearing. How do you know where is this from? What is their track record? What have they said in the past? How reliable are they? What, what, what aspects of what they are saying should we hold in, in, in suspense and disbelief and query and challenge and perhaps look for further corroboration before we cast judgment? Um, these are, these are things that an emotional person struggles to do. Mm. Uh, and somebody who's focused on the anger and the emotion of it will not be able to, uh, respond appropriately for or with um so that's and that you know when you think about the kind of skills that um that i've had the privilege to uh be be taught and experience and then apply and which i try and uh share with my students um that's that's they're really important skills for government pardon me and for industry and for bodies that are looking at challenges and to not respond emotionally Mm -hmm but to respond with a sense of broader perspective. What's happening? What are the broader factors here? What, what, what about this situation do we not yet have answers to? And, and be open to, uh, you know, having your hypotheses on in, in your interpretation of events challenged um, and, and, and having the humility to do so. And um, I don't claim to be particularly humble, but I'm mindful, I'm acutely mindful of my limitations and that I... I am not omniscient. That I am not really that clever. I I might work hard, and I I I've been blessed with many opportunities, but I'm acutely mindful that many people have many good insights, experiences, perspectives that are, I need to be open to, and 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 that's an ongoing part of the part of the journey, if you like. Yeah, mm. I actually find this really interesting because the point here is that it's very important not to be dismissive of other thoughts, mm. points of view, ideas that might not even resonate with you. It actually, again, going back to my father here for a moment, I remember him reading particular books at home, you know, on weekends and what have you, yeah. and he would... <laughs> And he would kind of get quite angry about what the theory that's in the book. And, yeah. you know, he would come and stand in the kitchen over over lunch and kind of explain to my mum and I, 
some part of a theory that he completely rejects and why yeah, it is. Yeah. And, you know, we, we would, if we could keep up with it, my mum sure would, but I didn't. And I'm thinking, why is he reading something that upsets him so much? Again, I was a teenager, <laughs> so I didn't quite get that. Yeah, yeah. Now I completely get it. Well, I, I got it quite some time ago that really in order to understand the world around you, you have to understand the people you disagree with. Yeah. And you have to have a conversation and you have to be able to form a logical, simple, but not basic yes. uh, conversation in, in, for that to, to essentially have some kind of discourse and then have your That's position. right. And then there's a fine balance there between, um, just, as I say, distilling complexity into apparent simplicity and being overly reductionist yeah, yeah. And, and seeing things in black and white when there is shades of grey and when, the, when a, a black and white answer is actually going to lead you down the wrong path and what you need is a nuanced perspective that's 3D and it's got shade. Um, and that that is... Uh, that's hard. That means you've got to have an open mind, and it is as I, as you, you know we're saying. Uh, it does mean sometimes you will be, get challenged. You'll have things that will be confronting uh, that you'll have to grapple with, mm. and maybe recognise that some of at least part of what they are saying is valid, um, and not everything that they are saying should be rejected because it doesn't fit your preconceived ideas. Yeah, and even if it's not valid, knowing that it exists allows you to have a conversation. Absolutely. Otherwise, you've, exactly. So, mm. I, it, I mean, I use that line, simple but not basic, because I just realised when you were talking before, I read recently an article that was about uh, forms of communication mm. in the corporate world, mm. and they said try to distill things into a simple but not basic idea. Yeah. And what they meant is basic is when it's so simple that it's essentially useless. Yeah, you've black and white, two-dimensional. That's it. Mm. That it's fine to be sitting in the grey, just don't make it confusing. Confusing. And so I love the way that we're speaking about this. In intelligence work, especially when you're representing a particular country, so we're in Australia, do you have to have your values aligned to that country in order to to understand the world? The reason that I say this, I remember when I did both political science and um, actually anthropology at ANU when I was doing my psych degree. One of the interesting things out of anthropology is they said you cannot judge another culture or society based on your your standards, which of course is exceptionally difficult to do because that's where it came out of, and you can't completely be a blank slate. Mm. But the idea is that you're very wary of that 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 takes place. Just about political conversations, do you go into it believing in what Australia stands for and the democratic system that we have, and then you know you build from that? I think I know what you're saying. Yeah. So. You know, if you're working as an employee of the Australian government, then you're working for the Australian government. But you're working for a government that's an open liberal democratic society where the contestation of ideas is legitimate and expected. And that's what a parliament does. There's loyal opposition where you you contest ideas, you, you debate, and the debating and contesting involves refinement. And the end product, for instance, in the drafting of legislation is about amending a a good idea that's got rough edges and polishing it so that it becomes something that both sides of politics can pass. Most legislation passes uncontroversially because both sides have had a play and had a say in the forming of that legislation. And they basically agree with the end result, which is a compromise between the, the, and you know, it's, it's a, there's a consensus. What we get in the news is the points of rub where, where there is disagreement. But that's actually a, a minor fraction of the legislation that gets addressed. But that's what an open, liberal, democratic society does. They contest ideas. They have differences of ideas. When you then look externally, though, if you're going to engage externally, then you are, you're really, if you're a government employee, you're part of Team Australia. 
Yeah. You know, and you're doing that. But what you want, what, what, what our government should be wanting is that those people who are part of Team Australia have a nuanced, deep, sophisticated understanding of the world in which they're engaging. Like, you know, one of the things I, uh, that strikes me is a real concern for me about our engagement with our neighbourhood is that so few of us have any understanding of Indonesia, mm -hmm. um, our most important and largest and cons most consequential neighbour, which we literally, metaphorically, um, and, you know, it, we literally we skip over it on our way somewhere else. Um, and it is, you know, a country 10 times our size, the third largest country in the world, the, the, la the third largest democracy, the largest Muslim populated country in the world, um, astride the, the gateways between the Indian and Pacific Oceans, the maritime fulcrum of, of the Indo-Pacific, as Jocko Widodo once described it. An incredibly consequential country that few of us have much of an understanding of. You know, why is it that Indonesia's bebas active, free and active foreign policy is, is not as well understood as it, as it should be? Now, we're making strides, positive strides in that direction with the Indonesia-Australia Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, IACEPA, which is really positive, um, but it's from a low base. Mm. And, you know, I know, uh, I've been critical of Paul Keating on some things, but in the 1990s, you really pushed for us to learn Indo Asian languages, particularly Indonesian. And it's, and it's a great, Tra tragedy that um, we've let that lapse and that we have got a step really backwards from that point where we were engaged in our neighbourhood. Um, and this is about, you know, I, I talk about this in my classes as well, uh, reconciling our history with our geography. We are, by and large, a Anglo-European transplanted community that would probably be more comfortable if we were physically located in the North Atlantic. But we're not. We're on the edge of Asia and our geography tells us we need to get used to that. And now our population, our demography is increasingly saying that, you know, about one eighth of our, about quarter, half of our, one quarter of our population is foreign born and half of them are from Asia, from East Asia, Southeast Asia or South Asia. Um, that's a change, a transformation in the last uh, 50, 55 years since the 1967 abandonment of the white Australia policy transforming the space we live in and yet we remain uh, primarily you know a country of barely monolingual Australians you know when I say barely monolingual I mean you know no one no one else speaks strine yeah. uh, other than us um, so we barely we you know most people in the world struggle with understanding our version of English and we certainly don't speak anyone else's language by and large um, and that I think is a real problem. Um, as we think about reconciling the dialectic of our history and our geography, pulling those two together is really important. This is something about my engagement in Southeast Asia, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to be director of Southeast Asia Institute and had a ball doing that for a couple of years, is I really believe in the importance of Indonesia and Southeast Asia to Australia. I'm acutely mindful of the, of the significance of mainland Southeast Asia to our, to our destiny as well. Um, and we are, we're a middle power. We, we, we're not a great power. Um, but I think, you know, often enough we've been a middle power with small power pretensions. We haven't, we haven't really appreciated, um, the role we can play in the neighborhood, the mm. constructive role we can play. And we haven't really appreciated how much our neighbors look to us to see what we might do as this Anglo European transplant community in their neighborhood, what that says about what their options might be. Um, and, um, this is where I think we, we can really, um, 
It's not about being haughty or patronising or neo-colonial. It's about respectfully appreciating our role, respectfully engaging with counterparts as equals who are important to us, perhaps more so than we are to them. And I think that's so important. We, it's, you know, it's not an, and people say, oh, John, you know, you, you talk so much about AUKUS and things like that. It's not either or. It's, just, it's not binary. You know, yes, we can have a positive relationship with the UK and the United States. Yes, we can be partners with NATO. It's not either or. Yep. Um, it's in the grey again. It's in the, exactly. There's a nuance there. All of these relationships matter to Australia because we have to reconcile our history with our geography. It's an enduring part of the dialectical challenge we face. It's not one or the other. It's together. Well, um, your student's probably just about to knock on the door. (laughs) And I love where this conversation's going because you've just given me an insight of the very thing you were talking about 20 minutes ago, which is the idea of looking at current information, past history, and doing a prediction of possibilities, which is exactly what you've just done. So there's there's a perfect example. Before I let you go, one very quick question. Uh, I was talking about the public before and those of us who want to be informed to a degree that's, once again, not overwhelming. Where would you suggest we look for information about such things as, for example, the Russia-Ukraine conflict? We don't have the access that academics do. We're not in that world. Mm. So what would you suggest is the best way of consuming this kind of information that offers an ability for us to get information and and digest it in a way that's okay for our daily lives? Um, So I caution against reliance on a single source. Mm -hmm. and this is classic intelligence analysis training too. Don't become reliant on a single source. Even if you really trust it, chances are uh, it won't deliver all the time. Um, and so I think it's important to be open-minded, uh, to listen br- broadly and to be sceptical of whatever. I mean, people depends on how much time you've got and what, what, what your, you know, predilections are most people don't want to spend time watching all and reading all these various news outlets and and journals and perspectives on on the issues they just want a simple take and that's understandable um so uh as i say it's you know i i i read across you know daily i'm reading i'm reading the guardian crikey the australian the Canberra Times, uh, um, Foreign Affairs, Australian Foreign Affairs, The Diplomat, um, uh, uh, Canadian Papers, UK Papers, US Papers, um, uh, journal articles. I, I, people often forward stuff to me too mm-hmm. for me to think, John, John, are you across this? And, you know, there might be a new article in, in, a, in a particularly international security-related journal that I'll read and try and digest. Um I guess the key point is not that there's one source to rely on. Because they'll to, all have bias. Because they'll it? all have a yeah. bias. Mm. But to be open-minded, to to have a healthy degree of scepticism, but not to buy in too much to conspiracy theories. Uh, very. I remember when I was dealing with my Russian counterpart in Myanmar, and I, he said to me, John, it is all a, it is all a CIA conspiracy. And I said to him, you know, over a glass of vodka... <laughs> They love their vodka. So you can't keep up with them. Um, I said to you, mate, you credit them with more capability than I know them to have. It's just like um, in open societies, holding conspiracies together 
it's well nigh impossible because there's too many skeptics out there and there's too many channels for for skepticism to be aired um and uh, unfortunately we've we're now in an era where fake news and and social media has um taken hold to an extent where a lot of people now don't believe mainstream media and will prefer the alternative media and i i think We've got a problem, and this is, I think, part of the issue with governments too—a cynicism um, about about their role, the way they play politics, that can be harmful. And one of the things I, I like to teach my students about is the accountability mechanisms in the intelligence community that come from over years of re- review, reviews and reforms that have led to a reasonably robust system where there is accountability, where there are checks and balances. But in an open society, and you know, like Karl Popper said when he wrote his book, the multi-volume book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, you have to really be wary of the accretion of power and the abuse of power. And accountability and openness and transparency and audit are really important functions for maintaining people's confidence in the institutions of state and the voices of our leaders. And I'm afraid that at the moment... That's really been challenged. John, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. It's, it'd be so easy to have this conversation rolling on and on, but I, I don't yeah. want to keep the student well standing on there for much longer. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ashley. It took me right back to, like I said, all those days that my dad used to have mm. academic friends over mm. and I used to listen in on the conversations, which I surely didn't understand, but mm. nevertheless found interesting. Mm. This is a little bit different. I do understand what you're saying and find it very, very encouraging, actually, and quite, quite exciting. So... Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. It's been a pleasure. So there you have it. That was my conversation with John Blacksland on Behind the Bio. I hope you enjoyed that insight into his world. And I hope you took some lessons or perhaps ideas into how you can apply his strategic level of thinking to some of the things that are happening around us. You may have also picked up how academic thought and discourse essentially is then translated into policies and procedures and actions that we see in front of us every day. If you enjoyed that conversation, then there will be many more to come. If you enjoyed that conversation and you think someone else would, then please let them know this is how the podcast grows. It's purely out of recommendation and it's doing well. So thank you for all those that are doing all those recommendations to the family and friends. If you wanted to hear from someone specific, then please just let me know. I'd love to hear from you. The best way to get in touch with me is via Instagram at Behind the Bio Podcast, or if you prefer email, then Ashley underscore Farod at Outlook.com. I'd like to thank the Coordinate Group for being the partner in bringing all of these podcasts and episodes to you with me. And I hope you can join me for the next episode of Behind the Bio soon.